The following podcast contains explicit language, including the words, well, you'll just have to wait and see. Hi, I'm Josh Levine, Slate's national editor, and this is Hang Up and Listen for the week of August 8th, 2022. On this week's show, on the occasion of Vin Scully's death at the age of 94, we'll take an audio tour of the broadcaster's life and career. We'll also review the Showtime documentary NYC Point Gods on the great New York City guards of the 80s and 90s, from Kenny Smith to God Sham God. And finally, I've got a couple of interviews with tennis players, the French-American servant volleyer Maxime Cressy and Daria Saville, who was born in Russia and now represents Australia. I'm in Washington, D.C., and I'm the author of The Queen and the host of the podcast One Year. Joining me this week, Vincent Cunningham. He's a staff writer and theater critic for The New Yorker. And he promised us he was going to watch the movie Hustle. I think it was seven times by the end of June. <laughs> and so it's past time that we checked in on that, oh, Vincent. What is what is your oh, count? Oh, man. I've let everybody down. It's The official count is three. I watched it two more times well, after bad. we talked about it. I did. I've watched it, but I didn't I didn't make it all the way. But but check check in around Thanksgiving and you'll be astounded. Trust me. <laughs> Another update is that Wancho is now uh, with the Toronto Raptors. I know everybody's wanting to know where Bo Cruz landed, so he he found another job in the NBA. Good for him. Also with us from Paris this week, maybe our first co-host from Paris, Slate staff writer Henry Grabar. Henry writes about urbanism, real estate, transportation, and sometimes sports, like he did last week when he got ratioed for accurately noting that most of baseball's most exciting players pitch and hit on the West Coast. I'm sorry that uh, the internet couldn't deal with the truth, Henry. Yeah, it's all right. I can take the criticism. (laughs) (laughs) We will get to that story in our Slate Plus segment this week. And if you want to hear that, it is, as I noted, about how now with Juan Soto going to the Padres, so many of the exciting players in baseball live in Pacific time. And what, if anything, can be done about it? If you want to hear that, then um, you need to be a Slate Plus member and you can become a member by going to slate.com slash hangupplus, and you get bonus segments every week, ad-free podcasts, etc., and so forth. Slate.com slash hangupplus. When the baseball announcer Vin Scully died last week, we lost a living connection to America's past. This was a guy who, in his early 20s, called Jackie Robinson's games with the Brooklyn Dodgers, and in his late 80s, broadcast Clayton Kershaw's starts for the L.A. Dodgers. Scully saw and said a lot between 1950 and 2016 when he retired, even as he became famous in that 66-year run for letting certain moments speak for themselves. Let's start with a home run call that isn't famous because, honestly, most of them aren't. Here's (laughs) Scully on the radio calling an ordinary Brooklyn Dodgers game in June of 1957. All right, bottom of the third, 3-0 Brooklyn. Duke Snyder, Gino Simoli, and Gil Hodges. Snyder walked in the first inning, Duke batting 245. Rod has a sign now. Dick winds and delivers. Fastball cut on is a high drive to deep center field. Going away back near the bleachers, just watching it, it's gone. Lee Walls just had to let her go. And the ball bounces out of the lower deck of the bleachers. Walls picks it up and throws it in the upper deck. Henry, it's kind of remarkable how much of the Scully that we know is present. Um, back then, or maybe it isn't remarkable. But the reason that I wanted to start there is that 
I hadn't heard that call. I mean, there's no reason I would have before I kind of started looking around on YouTube and finding old Scully games. But isn't it just kind of incredible that we can be there, listen to a game in Ebbets Field with that voice? Yeah, it's beautiful. I think the first thing that stands out to me is the voice, right? The voice is exactly the same. It's got that weird mix of both a kind of an old-timey Brooklyn accent and also hints of, I think, what I might call like a transatlantic accent, like an old-fashioned actor, like listening to Catherine Hepburn or something like that, which I think Scully had a bit of that too. And that's something that really, when you would hear him in, say, the 2010s, that was the thing that would remind you most that this was a man who'd been calling six decades of uh, baseball games because it's just not the kind of voice that you uh, hear very often anymore. And the other thing I like about that clip is that it's a reminder that although some of the clips we're going to be discussing today come from some of the historic moments that he had the fortune to call behind the mic, but in spite of that, you know, he was basically in an essentially throwaway medium, calling games for listeners who may have only been half there, and he managed to make such a lasting cultural impression, um, not just for his general demeanor and his vibe, but also for just the way that he kept listeners company throughout the years for so many decades. I mean, that's the way most people would have experienced Vin Scully, not not by sharing um, a viral anecdote on Twitter, although I've really been enjoying uh, the last few days of doing that. But it's just a reminder that baseball on the radio would have been, you know, something people... Uh, listen to only half there to buffer the passage of time over so many summers, hours and hours every day. And he did that. He was that companion, not by sort of trying to, in some ways, jolt you out of that half thereness or sort of contravene the mood that he knows that you're in, but by sort of going with the flow of it. It's like, it's like the home run has happened. He's oh, there, there it goes. And if you're listening, great. And if you're not, you know, you'll you'll catch on. And there's a sort of equanimity about that status that that you hear in that voice as well. All right, so before we take Scully from Brooklyn to LA, just a quick note on how he got that job. It's a pretty amazing story. He was 22 years old, graduated from Fordham, Red Barber, the famous baseball announcer for the Dodgers and the Yankees. The Dodgers at that time um, was looking for somebody to help out with a college football game. As a reporter, Scully gets the gag, goes out, And there wasn't room for him in the press box, so he ends up calling the game from the roof on a cold day. And that so impresses Red Barber that when there's a spot open in the baseball booth, he gives uh, Scully that slot. Then Barber eventually gets in a contract dispute um, and doesn't call the World Series in 1953. And Scully gets the promotion. I guess Barber had been offered $200 per game and he had rejected it. So Scully, at the age of 25, becomes the youngest person ever at that point and still to call a World Series. So there is a kind of ephemerality to what he did, as you said, Henry, but also he had become a national voice by the time he was 25 in the mid-50s. And then, as we you know have been reading about in the last week or so, when he gets out to L.A., he becomes the voice of Los Angeles um, as baseball expands to the West Coast and as um, people out there are kind of learning the game. They have the transistor radios in the crowd. And so this next call that we're going to hear 
um, September 9th, 1965, Sandy Koufax's perfect game for the Dodgers. Some have called it the greatest call in the history of the medium. We can be the judge of that right now. The Dodgers defensively. In this spine-tingling moment, Sandy Koufax and Jeff Torboy. The boys who will try and stop anything hit their way. Wes Parker, Dick Trasuski, Maury Wills, and John Kennedy. The outfield of Lou Johnson, Willie Davis, and Ron Fairley. And there's uh, 29,000 people in the ballpark and a million butterflies. That call ends up going on for about nine minutes, Vincent. Yeah. Um, we'll, we'll post the transcript on our show page. But often cited for the kind of extemporaneous poetry and yeah. also the kind of ability to meet the moment um, that, you know, not many perfect games in baseball and, and Scully got the opportunity to call this one. Yes. There's just that wonderful sort of casual poetry, the spine tingling moment. And um, what it strikes me, like what it might mean to be the best at something, especially like calling a baseball game is to do the thing that's most congruent with, with the sport at hand, right? Like he knows that there are these moments in baseball where you can really kind of expand and talk and narrate and sort of um, provide these codas or these introductions that are amazing, you know? One of my sadnesses is that I'm not sure that basketball has ever had that. Like someone that just like gets the, the cadences of basketball and can make it work with that game. But you feel this sense of just sort of casualness and ease that's like it's beautiful you 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 want to listen to it i was upset when it stopped just now <laughs> you know? I, I, um you you want to just have it on yeah i think that as a podcaster josh i'm sure you can appreciate this but the linguistic gift to be able to improvise the kinds of lines that he comes up with apparently off the cuff without any filler without any, you know, taking a second chance to, to try and uh, perfect what he's just said. I think in that in that half inning when Koufax is dealing, there's a couple more lines that stuck out. And we read the transcript of this. And in addition to that great line, 29,000 people in the ballpark and a million butterflies, there's, um, there's a moment when uh, Koufax throws what Scully deems is evidently a ball. And the crowd starts booing because obviously they want him to complete the perfect game. And Scully says, a lot of people in the ballpark now are starting to see the pitches with their hearts. It's just like, <laughs> wow. uh, I'm, in, I'm in awe. Yeah, a couple notes on that game. Scully apparently asked whoever was in charge of such a thing to make a recording of the ninth inning, kind of understanding the ephemerality of the medium, but this being one that he knew that they would want to save. And you could actually buy a record, last inning Sandy Koufax, perfect game, actual reproduction as narrated by Vince Scully. Look for that in a record store near you. And Henry, the next um, clip we're going to listen to, or Vincent, I think it was you who was making this point, is that we're going to hear his call of Hank Aaron's uh, 715th home run. This is again a moment where you know that this is going to be something he probably didn't know about the internet. I don't know, maybe he did. Um, <laughs> but he knew that this was something where he was going to want to get it right. And yet, he didn't prepare anything in advance. Milo Hamilton, the announcer for the Braves, no shade on Milo. He did prepare, but Ven was like, why would I, why would I do that? I got to see how it feels in the moment. So this is how it felt in the moment. One ball and no strikes. Aaron waiting, the outfield deep and straight away. 
Fastball is a high drive in the deep left center field. Butner goes back to the fence. It is gone. What a marvelous moment for baseball. What a marvelous moment for Atlanta and the state of Georgia. What a marvelous moment for the country and the world. A black man is getting a standing ovation in the deep south for breaking a record of an all-time baseball idol. And it is a great moment for all of us, and particularly for Henry Aaron. So one thing that you didn't hear there, Henry, is the incredibly long pause. We cut that out in the interest of time. But um, between his home run call and his kind of broader statement about the significance, he kind of let the the moment uh, live and, and breathe for an incredibly long time. Right. Much has been made of Vin's trademark silences in the days since his death. I think it's one of the things that people think of as as uh, associating with his knack for these big moments, his willingness to let the play speak for itself, his reserve, which I think was both a calculated decision, but also in some instances, he has said this, a result of his own emotion that he sometimes felt that he wasn't ready to to jump in and 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 give his two cents about about what had happened beyond simply calling the play but i think in this case it's also i think as eric nussbaum said in in his piece for slate it's a chance to let you the listener be there with the fans in the case of aaron's home run we can now watch the video of it with scully's commentary attached which i think is the way most people we now see it attached to the video and as you're listening to this podcast, presumably you're not seeing the video. So you would be experiencing it as, as listeners did. And when you see the video, you realize that there's a lot that Scully could have been describing because there's a lot going on in the field. It's not just Aaron trotting around the base paths. He's shaking hands with the Dodgers infielders as he goes around. And then there's these two guys who run onto the field and join him as he's uh, between second and third base. And I think that was sort of a scary moment because, you know, the, the, the chase for 715 was, was fraught for Aaron. He was getting death threats. He really was not enjoying it. And his bodyguard in the stands said that seeing those guys run out, he worried that they had bad intentions. And in fact, what they do is they just go up to Aaron and congratulate him. And it's sort of a beautiful thing. But, but Scully leaves all that. I mean, he just leaves all that to the side. And so he, he lets you not only experience it with the crowd, but also maybe invites you in that long silence to take a moment of reflection for with yourself, just to think about what, what you already know as a listener is a, is a historic moment. Yeah. I mean, you can hear him sort of, even the it's good in the actual play call. And maybe this is just my contemporary ears, you know, I'm just used to people screaming, but you can already hear him sort of pulling back into a kind of restraint, that there's like a, a push and pull between emotion and, a deeper kind of reserve. One of the things that I um, didn't really know so well about him that I've heard now and remembrance after remembrance, I think I heard the um, Wall Street Journal's Jason Gay mentioned this, that speaking about a person out of time in terms of his voice, he was that way too in terms of his dress. You know, that he was a very well-dressed kind of dapper guy. There's the pocket square, the, the perfectly tailored jacket. And you can hear some of the, some of that restraint. There's a, almost a kind of dapperness to it, you know, a kind of style uh, that, like, I, I can give you something, but I'd, I'm not going to get overly prolix about this. There seems to be almost an ethos at work there as well. And the thing that's notable about that call is that he does kind of 
step out of the moment on the field and talk about the greater social significance, which is not something that he typically did. You won't hear that in any of the other clips. Right. Um, and so there are a couple things to say about that. Number one, it's like, well, he did recognize that this was an unusual incident and one that actually had significance in American history and not just baseball history. Because, you know, it's not like any of the other stuff that we're listening to just on its own had that same kind of impact on the the world beyond the sports world. But also maybe not being prepared, you know, if you're living in that silence, gives you a little bit of time to actually write what you want to say <laughs> in your head. So maybe uh, instead of giving Scully credit um, for speaking extemporaneously, maybe we should give him credit for writing quickly. Because when, kind of like what you were saying, Henry, if you, as a minute goes by, two minutes, three minutes, and you're watching everything on the field and maybe not describing every last moment, uh, it seems like the weight of history just started kind of weighing on him and that's what he delivered to, to people. It is hard to think about and remember but Scully had a game show he called golf. And from 1975 to 1982, he called NFL games for CBS Sports. The last game that he ever called was the famous 1982 NFC title game that ended with the catch by Dwight Clark from Joe Montana. And of course, for the upstart 49ers, they're six yards away from Pontiac. Third and three. The right side, possibly. Montana. Six yards from Pontiac, Vincent, doesn't have quite the same poetry as a million butterflies. Um, <laughs> how, does it, how does it sound to you to hear Vince Scully call a, a football game? Not just a football game, one of the kind of most memorable moments in the history of the NFL. It's so funny, before this past uh, week, I had not heard that call, and I, I did not, you know, I, I didn't even know that he, was, that he had called that game. So it was, it, it's really interesting to hear. For me, it's a little, like, because I, my awareness of Scully has been so tied to his sort of like uh, this sort of amber toned golden hour feeling of baseball. It does feel, it does feel sort of like out of, out of my comprehension. There's a little like disjuncture there when I hear it, but it's the same, the same rudiments are there, you know, the same sort of almost narrative pacing, the sense of atmosphere, a sense of description that's not in words, but is in uh, tone of voice that sort of gives you a sense a weird sense of space and then that again that sort of almost muted climax where he's like he's raised his voice but he's not exploded you know the same sense of manners so it's it's great to hear i think he is of course well known for his reserve but when stan said about that play to me is that he's excited and it reminds me of joe buck calling david tyree's helmet catch which he does with such an unimpressed tone. <laughs> it is caught by Tyree. I think that's what he says. I'll never forgive him for it because every time <laughs> I watch the clip, it's just hard to, it's just, it's just Buck just did not do it justice. And I, and I appreciate the way Scully here, and we could talk about this in the baseball context more because he had such authority as somebody who had seen Jackie Robinson and seen Willie Mays and all these guys 
but it was not afraid still to, to raise his voice now and again and, and, and impress on you um, the importance of the moment and, and how it felt to, to be there and see it. Brian Curtis in The Ringer provided this amazing detail, um, and I'll just quote from his piece. That season of 82, CBS had pitted Scully against Pat Summerall in a public bake-off to see who would make a better partner for John Madden. The network decided that Scully and Madden were volume shooters who wouldn't work well together. Can you imagine what an alternate history the, that would be of Vince Scully and John Madden <laughs> together? All right, um, before we move on to some of his great 1980s calls that you're, you're probably anticipating, a brief pause here for something a little bit different which is, in 1982, a San Diego Padres marketing executive named Andy Strasberg wondered, could Scully's amazing voice make even a grocery list fantastic listening? Let's find out. Sure, Andy, I'd be happy to. Well, let's see. We've got a dozen eggs, a quart of milk, a loaf of bread, a can of frozen orange juice, six small white onions, a green pepper, garlic powder, a package of American cheese, pickles, kosher, that is, bananas, cornflakes, maple syrup, toothpaste, paper towels, toilet paper, six bars of soap, hot dogs, quarter pound of chopped meat, steak, lamb chops, package of spaghetti, three apples, bologna, cottage cheese, a pound of butter, two ears of corn, beer, ketchup, peanut butter, soy sauce, and a half a pound of coffee. What is your favorite item on that list, Vincent? <laughs> it's a package of American cheese. That that's that's the one where the technique really shows, dude. That roller coaster ride there is great. Also, bologna, very good. <laughs> I'm gonna go with garlic powder, <laughs> <laughs> but also pickles, kosher, of course. Yeah, that musicality really comes through there, doesn't it? It does, um, and we can just move move right along from there. It doesn't need to be overanalyzed. Um, and this next uh, clip doesn't need any preamble either. Let's just uh, dive right in. Can you believe this ball game at Shea? Oh, brother. So the winning run is at second base with two out, three and two to Mookie Wilson. Little roller up along first, behind the bag. It gets through Buckner. Here comes Knight, and the Mets win it. One of the first sports moments that I remember actually watching in 1986. And Henry, the thing that stands out on that for me is this was on television. Um, he called the World Series and in 86 and then in 88, which we'll hear in a second. And kind of in contrast to what you described with the Aaron moment, every kind of fine detail of that Mookie Wilson bouncer up uh, first base is described. So I can picture it in my mind right now, everything that happened through his words, even as we're not watching the video. And it's interesting because you said, and this was for TV, right? Yeah. And it just goes to show that the is one of the, I think one of the beautiful things about people who talk about baseball on the radio is obviously you need to to recreate the game for the people who are listening, but because baseball is composed of so many familiar actions, you don't need to say that much to be able to conjure up instantly in the minds of the people who are listening exactly what's happened on the field. What that clip shows me too is you know the interaction 
between there's obviously this interaction between Scully and us watchers, listeners, whatever. But he has also has this very fine interaction with the crowd that's at hand, where you know he kind of even in the the build up moments has has raised his voice because it's how you comedians talk about surfing laughs and like stopping and talking again when the crowd noises reach a certain pitch so that they're kind of riding the sound that's that's coming back to you he's doing this in this this way as well where like he kind of has found his like ocean of calm but within the the larger static of the crowd there's something really interesting about that just like just vocally you know he's gotta project a little bit more and then he goes up and up and you hear him in this kind of counterpoint with the crowd it's really i don't know it's awesome and then there's the challenge right of calling the decisive moment of the game when it's not a moment of triumph but a moment of shame right yeah. something that would uh, you know you can't you can't give it that it just doesn't have the same spin i actually was really curious to know what he said next so five things, I think, in the span of a couple seconds that he has to get across. Little roller up along first, behind the bag, gets through Buckner, here comes Knight, and the Mets win it. No stumble or hesitation at all. And I think so many of these calls, there's the opportunity to linger, think about the right phrase, whether it's Koufax steps off the mound and you have a second to paint the picture, or Aaron circles the bases and you have a second to think about it. This is no no room for error, no room to no time to think. You just gotta say what happened. And he did it um, so beautifully and succinctly. And then two years after Buckner in 1988, this is another point I got from Brian Curtis. Scully alternated calling the World Series uh, on NBC with Al Michaels. And good thing for him, he got the even years. Um, so in 1988. <laughs> He delivered what's probably, I think, become his most famous call of Kirk Gibson's World Series home run off Dennis Eckersley. And this is another example where um, the clip that we pulled strips out a bunch of um, time when he's just letting the, the crowd roar. But this is kind of stitched together the standout trio of, of moments from Scully's call of the Gibson homer. the demands and with two out you talk about a roll of the dice this is it high fly ball into right field she is gone in a year that has been so improbable the impossible has happened a lot of people have commented on that she Vincent, like it's a yeah. like it's a ship from the 1700s yeah. <laughs> sailing off over the right field fence. Yeah, and the you know it's funny we're talking about the reserve, but one thing that in some ways he's kind of unchanging, but it does seem that he like as the years go on, Scully gets more and more intimate with the audience and kind of loosens the tie. I mean, the the sort of grit in the in that gone where it's like it, that's almost like a yell. Like there does seem to be, and, and also the. And look who's coming! Like there's a there's a familiarity. It's not informal, but listening to it in this way opens that up for me in a way that I hadn't really thought about. But he's got a you know his his feet are up even if they've got some velvet loafers on them. And this, the backstory about this call is almost just as absurd as the call itself, right? I mean, this 
story that's supposedly, I think, a story that comes from Scully himself, that Kirk Gibson was in the dressing room with ice on his legs. And he's listening to the TV and he hears Vin Scully say, he won't play, he's too injured, he can't come out here. And he yells out, bullshit, Vinny. And he throws the ice down. <laughs> and that's what leads to him coming up into the dugout and, and, and making that pinch appearance. Print the legend, I think, on, on that one. All right, our last clip comes from Scully's final year on the air in 2016. And I should say, before we get to that, in 1988, I remember hearing him. He just seemed like a guy out of the past even then because of what you said a while back, Henry, about like the kind of Catherine Hepburn, Cary Grant style voice. But just like I was a kid who was obsessed with baseball history. And this is the guy who called the Brooklyn Dodgers. And now he's on TV calling the World Series so I can unwatch it. Then we fast forward another three decades. Here he is in his final year on the air, 2016. And this clip kind of captures a facet of his broadcast that we haven't gotten to yet. Two down, second inning, no score. And first pitch, fastball for a strike. First of all, they say way back to the dawn of humanity, beards evolved, number one, because ladies liked them. And number two, it was the idea of frightening off adversaries and wild animals. Here's the one strike pitch, swung on and missed strike two. In fact, it was so serious, if you look it up, there's a divine <laughs> mandate for beards in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. No balls and two strikes, they count. <laughs> I definitely wanted to leave in just the, like, no balls and two strikes in the beginning and end, just because the baseball of it seems incidental, but is also essential. There's just, like, a baseball game yeah. going on in the in the background here. My experience is, like, that it's so good, and it's also how it is to watch baseball. My first times, it, it just jets me back to my first times watching baseball. Uh, my friend Jose, shout out to Jose. He, we would sit on his couch, and his mom had the, you know, like one of those plastic covered couches, and we would talk and talk and talk, watch what happened, watch the pitch, talk about it, go back, you know? Doing that on the air is like some, that's high level stuff, man. I, I love it. Lauren Thiessen has a great piece in Defector, uh, which is titled The Game Bent Around Vin Scully's Voice and describes just this sort of anecdote where his style of delivery and the way because he's doing both the play-by-play and the color, he's, you know, he's doing, he's alternating between the balls and strikes, calls calling, you know, foul ball here and there, and his story. And it often seems like because he's so good at pacing his story that the at-bats seem to progress in such a way that he manages to, you know, reach the climax right before the ball is put in play or before the inning ends or something like that. And, you know, I think it's just an amazing thing when you think about it that he he called games for some 60 years. And while it's easy to find these super celebrated famous moments, people also have an incredible recollection for these random stories that he told. You know, I was listening to one that he told about a coach on the Pittsburgh Pirates giving CPR to his dog <laughs> from a baseball game in the 1980s. And I guess after Scully died, somebody was like, oh, I've got just the story for this. 
I mean, it just it just boggles the mind how many how many hours this man spent speaking to the people of Los Angeles through their car radios. What a great way to end. Thank you for going on this long journey with us. And up next, we will talk about the documentary NYC Point Gods. City is the mecca of basketball. Just ask anyone from New York City. If you're looking for empirical evidence, consider that the city has more than 500 public courts and, last I counted, two NBA teams, never mind that both are currently in various stages of shambles. And then, of course, there are the legends, many of which are point guards. A new documentary on Showtime, NYC Point Gods, showcases a bunch of them who became stars in the 80s and 90s. Here's a clip. It was a buzz in the city about Pearl Washington. Everybody's packed in the park. The game is getting ready to start. Pearl's not there. So you see everybody walking. They leaving the park. Then you just see him coming in with a motorcycle. You know, he revving up the engine. And you see everybody running back to their seats. So Pearl would come to the games on a motorbike with a big gold Pac-Man chain because he always ate up his opponents. Makes me wonder what Rod Strickland would have sounded like calling some of those great uh, moments in baseball history. He has a good voice, too. Um, that, was, that was Rod Strickland and God Sham God celebrating the Syracuse legend Pearl Washington. And that clip gives a good sense of the movie, the vibe of which is unabashed, unapologetic, mutual appreciation. That's all it is, and it's one of the, it's one of the great things I've ever seen. For that reason, I love this movie. I do have my qualms with it. Um, but one of the, to your point, Josh, one of the great things about this movie is the proliferation of sort of last generation's New York accents. And you can hear it so, I mean, if you have an ear for this stuff, the, like the sort of the, the Brooklynese of Pearl, the, the Harlem sound of God Sham God, it's just, it's so good. One of the great things that they did with, with this is get Cameron as one of the sort of major, uh, interviewees. Cameron was apparently very good at basketball. One of my sadnesses that I never saw Cam play in Harlem, but apparently God Sham God's best friend, Cameron. Yeah. I mean, and he and the rapper Mace, very good basketball players, apparently. Just the voices in this are so good. A lot of assertion without argument, to your point, about how great New York is, which I'm fine about. I'm fine with. Um this was this was a really fun nostalgia tour for me. Henry, my first note here is New York solipsism, good or bad? Question mark. <laughs> Gosh, you know, I'm I, I'd be the last person to ask about you know whether the New York City point guard is a real phenomenon, but these guys certainly seem to think it is, and I think that's what counts. And and the you know I forget who has this recollection about Ben Wallace saying to him, "Oh, you must be from New York." This idea that the New York City point guard had a reputation in the NBA. There must be something to it. Well, I think it's a state of mind, and and that's part of 
there's this kind of recurring bit in the doc about um, the three characteristics of New York City point guards, handles, showmanship, and toughness. And two out of those three things are not actual basketball skills, showmanship and toughness. It's all that swagger. (laughs) It's all about the way you present yourself and the way that you think about yourself. And Vincent, part of this, like we were saying, is a kind of bountiful show of respect from one legend to another. Another part of it is this kind of tour of New York basketball history and, and New York history as seen through playgrounds. And my, my favorite part was this like little bit that came towards the end where they interviewed the New York City Parks blacksmith about yeah. the rims. Um, I don't know if you wanted to talk about that or any, any other part that um, stood out to you. It's very, it's so true. And I, I honestly do think that those are the best parts of the doc. So yes, he talks he he talks about these like all weather rims that can, you know, withstand all weather. But, you know, and I I played on these rims, especially the double ones, these, you know, the bright orange rims that are about like an inch high, like over the sort of the net has the perforations that go into it. Obviously, there's like a smoothness, and then there's like this this ridge of like an inch that just makes Jump shots impossible to shoot. That is a true thing. And I do think that this documentary was best, or I guess like more, more rigorous, when it tried to do things like that talk about the built environment, talk about public space, and, and talk about the dire nature of New York at the time that they're talking about, which is the 80s and 90s. In some ways, this is just totally congruous with a certain kind of hip-hop nostalgia as well, how it gave rise to a culture. You can quibble about whether the New York point guard was a phenomenon that you can trace in like you know the development of certain players or in the NBA, but it's undeniable that this was a cultural element that did affect the way the game was seen in New York. And it had something to do with hip hop. It had something to do with drugs at the time. It had something to do with the Congress between, um, this was kind of brought up very surreptitiously, but the Congress between the, the style of the sort of street hustler and how that became part of the style and presentation of, the, of, of a, a certain kind of, not only point guard, but basketball player, period. Um, those correspondences, I think, were the best part of this documentary. But to your point about like just sort of like the nebulous status of many of these claims, one of my favorite parts was early on in this documentary, Kenny Smith talks about going to UNC and basically thinking he was better than he was because he came from New York. And he, he says something like, I, I'm from New York. I had a delusion. You know, there's like something, there, there is a level of just like New York as a provincial place is on, is on display here floridly. I love it. I was thinking about that too. Like, what what is it really about New York besides its ineffable New Yorkness, or what can we sort of pin down in that ineffable New Yorkness that would contribute to a certain style of basketball play? And especially with with guys who I think come from pretty different backgrounds, like Kenny Smith and Mark Jackson are both from relatively, I, I think, middle class families in Queens, whereas like Stefan Marbury comes from the NYCHA projects in Coney Island and I think very movingly talks about how much being, you know, going to Georgia Tech and then and then being drafted meant to him 
because of the support that he could give to his family. Um, so I think, but the, despite those different backgrounds, it seems like one thing a lot of these guys have in common is this culture of playing in these public parks for huge audiences um, of people who are really, really invested in the game and sometimes even have a lot of money on the game, which I thought might have contributed to the, you know, a kind of like pressure cooker environment, um, especially as it relates to like being tough and, and being a showman. Yeah. The one part of, of this that I felt like had a ring of truth that was, it was like a kind of flash of insight for me. It was about the rims again and this kind of reputation the New York city point guards have for not being able to shoot. Um, and you could argue actually like, Oh, well, if the rims are really tight um, and it's tough to shoot, maybe that would make you a better shooter because if you want to, you know, get the ball through, you have to be like more precise, but actually no, like if it's, if it's game point, you're going to want to drive to the basket right. and shoot a layup, get a high percentage look that you can. So the ways in which the rim would actually discourage you to even attempt shots rather than to practice them and hone your skills, I thought like was persuasive. There are things about the stock, and maybe we can go around here if, if you guys have some too, that I found a little bit weaker and that I was a little bit disappointed by. There are some ways in which the kind of... Um, swagger and like all like you know you're you're buying the ticket you're going to take the ride but like there there's all this talk of like pearl washington destroyed the georgetown press in the 1984 big east tournament and everybody's talking about i can't believe he like totally ripped up patrick ewing like syracuse lost that game like (laughs) (laughs) it's like we're just gonna we're just gonna ignore that that point i also thought it was a little bit odd that they highlighted some some women who kind of had these same qualities but always in a pretty glancing sort of way. And like how easy would it have been to do like a whole segment on uh, Nisha Butler, who played for the Gauchos AAU program, as opposed to giving her like 30 seconds. Um, And that would have been really interesting to see how her kind of journey and story were similar in some ways to that of, uh, you know, Rod Strickland or whoever, and, and how it was different. And then you see the long list of executive producers and how these guys who are the focus have stakes in this project. It's like a Kevin Durant, Rich Kleiman thing. They right. um, are, are the first credited executive producers, but Vincent, like, you know, God Sham God is, is an executive producer. Right. And so it makes you wonder like, okay, maybe that's why they don't linger on like why this guy only played 20 games in the NBA. Maybe this is why like I had to look on Wikipedia to learn that like, Kenny Anderson has talked about being sexually abused by a basketball coach. I mean, like, these are not the sorts of things that you'll see in this documentary. And maybe that's just better for another movie on another day. But, like, it's it's not it's not going to give you the full picture in, like, big ways and small ways. Right. And, you know. When I spoke to Stefan Marbury a couple of years back, it was because he was doing, you know, a self-produced documentary like uh, the kid from Coney Island. I think that, you know, this is if you want to think about it in this way, this is the sort of documentary expression of what we've talked about jokingly before of this like sort of new media that is uh heralded by Draymond Green more the more and more players have decided to take their not only their sort of NBA business but also the business of sort of self-narrativizing uh self-storytelling uh on their own this is that that I think this is one of the the wages of that um setup and so it's interesting to think about 
the way that there might be two sort of rival ways of doing projects like this, one that is more sort of hagiographic and player-led, former player-led, whatever, and one that's the, you know, the one that those people will be mad about, right? I do think what you said about the sort of the women in basketball thing, I was so true, and it, it was so bad that I thought that this must have been added at the very end. They're like, oh, maybe we should get some some women in here. But no, because that's that can't be true because in the interviews, these men were sometimes asked about those women players, like, you know, again, in a kind of off-to-the-side way. So it just seemed to me a very faulty setup. On a less serious note, but uh, deadly serious to me, the actual worst thing about this documentary was the weird slam poet that was like the narr- narrator who's like in between. He's like, God, sham God. Such a, It's like, dude, I just heard this. I don't need to hear it in rhyme now. Like, that guy was horrible. If there's anything in this doc that sort of cast a negative light on on new york it was it was him um, <laughs> i i think isn't it was i don't know I, i'm even gonna mention his name maybe that's too mean but i mean this guy was really really bad really they could have threaded this together in any other way this slam poetry was egregious in this setting i thought final thought from you henry on the slam poetry or anything else <laughs> Well, I'm just glad I got to hear Chuck D say microwave square garden. That's going to stick with me. (laughs) Up next, a couple interviews from Washington, D.C.'s pro tennis tournament, the City Open. This past week in Washington, D.C., a bunch of the world's best tennis players got together at the City Open, where a great time was had by all, at least when it wasn't a billion degrees and or raining. The winners were Nick Kyrgios on the men's side and Ludmilla Samsonova for the women. I did not talk to either of those people, but I did do interviews on site with two players who I think are extremely fascinating. First up, Maxime Cressy. He's just reached a career high number 31 in the world. Cressy is 25 years old and represents the U.S., although he was born in France to a French father and an American mother. As you'll hear, this dude really believes in himself, which is important because he doesn't play like anyone else on tour. All right, Maxime, uh, so nice to meet you. Thanks for doing this. Nice to meet you too. Yeah, very happy to be here. So one thing that I read about you that I find so fascinating is that you played a match when you were 14 years old, you hurt your elbow, and that kind of changed the whole arc of your life and career. Can you tell that story? Yeah, it's an, it's an amazing story. I mean, it just, I'm, I'm the type of player who's very competitive and I hate giving up. So that day uh, when I was 14, I played club matches for, for Le Lagardère Paris Racing, my club. And I was like, I didn't want to let the, the people down. I felt a little hurt in my elbow area. And um, I couldn't hit any foreign. I couldn't stay on the baseline. My, my elbow was just killing me. And uh, in my mind, I was like, you know what? I'm just going to serve in volley. <laughs> and, and, and I was actually quite good at it. 
And I ended up winning the match, doing certain volley and mostly charging the net. And I just fell in love with the feeling of putting a, a volley away. It was just incredible to feel the finishing it at the net. And, and ever since, I never stopped doing it. So it was, it was a revelation. It says something about you that um, you have a revelation at age 14 and stick with it. Mm -hmm. Like a lot of the things that we think about at 14, yes. it turns out to be wrong or we decide that we were wrong, but yes. um, you've had the kind of strength to want to stick with it for you know more than a decade at this point. Yeah, and the difficult part is I had that revelation and, and I had the feeling of wanting to do that. And nobody in my environment uh, encouraged me to do that game style. And all the voices I heard were that it's not going to be uh, uh, the best game style uh, to win in the future, that it's, it's from the past, now things have changed, uh, have evolved into a more baseline game, so that I wouldn't find myself uh, in a professional tour uh, successful with, that, with, with uh, this servant volley style. So uh, I, I needed that, the strength and the... I needed a lot of character to stick with it, yeah. So one of the narratives around you, and I'm curious if you buy into it, is that you're maybe the most improved player that um, anyone's ever seen. I know some of your teammates at UCLA when you played in college have said that, talking about the progress from when you were a freshman um, until your senior year there and now on tour. But as somebody who I know believes in yourself so <laughs> vehemently, I wonder if you've think that you've actually improved that much or whether you were always had the talent and just weren't given the opportunity. Mm -hmm. I, I, I would definitely that my, the progress I've achieved so far has been, uh, has been a consequence of uh, having uh, a mindset to be number one. My first, mind, my first uh, thought of being number one was to be at UCLA when I was a freshman. I, I was on a bench. I, I was not a part of the singles lineup. and. Uh, and that gave me a lot of motivation to to want to be number one there, and uh, and then once I achieved that goal to be number one there, I was like, oh my God, anything's possible. I, I've improved so much, and and it's really it's becoming a reality. And I was like, okay, now I'm in the professional tour. I'm I'm what 500 in the world. Let's see if I can do the same in, on the professional tour as well. So then my first goal was to be number one on the tour as well. So I don't. I'm the kind of person that. Do not uh, set any limits. I, I think there's no such thing as limits, that they're all an illusion. So that's why I, I, I just go for it and I don't look back, yeah. So the first time that I had ever heard of you and seen you play was the Cleveland Challenger, where you made your breakthrough, I think about three years yeah. ago now. Yes. And I was like, this guy seems really interesting, serve and volley. And also during that tournament, you were kind of pissing some of the other players off. Yeah. Like, I believe, with Tim Smichek, you played, told you to shut up during the yeah, match. Yeah. A guy from an adjoining court told you to shut up because yes. you were roaring. Did that actually make you happy to like get in other players' heads like that? Or how did you respond to the way that they responded to you? Well, my whole mindset around my, my game is, is to have a game that gets inside my opponent's heads. I mean, I did not want to be that way in terms of like the rowing and everything. But now today, in terms of my game style, my main goal is to instill doubt in every of my opponent's heads. And I think I've been very successful at it. And no, I, I definitely feel confident that my game is limitless and it's going to keep being limitless until the day I retire. Yeah. So another of the breakthroughs that you had was you made an ATP final in Australia pre-Aussie Open and you played Nadal, lost him. But afterwards he said, that you, uh, Maxime, are going to be a very uncomfortable player for every opponent. 
so after the match you lost, I, I'm assuming you were pissed off, mm-hmm. but like, did it instill more confidence in you to hear Rafa say that you were going to be uncomfortable for any player to play against? Well, playing Rafa was such an incredible experience because it also gave me so much confidence that even against, I would say, the top player from that time in the world, I, I was able to get in his head and he really felt nervous against me. And that was such a huge confidence booster for, for the next part of the season. But I was definitely not uh, angry at all after the match. I was, uh, I had more of a humble uh, response where I, where I was like, he handled the match mentally much better than me. Uh, but I definitely felt incredible at the idea that even Rafael Nadal, I can, I can, I can have a big impact on on him. It was really special to me. Yeah. I forgot the other <laughs> example I wanted to bring up of your game style actually bothering a player was Medvedev, and him. Uh, at the Aussie Open, just clearly being discombobulated by what you were doing. I think he said, this is boring at one point, and then apologized (laughs) for it afterwards. But that, as opposed to the roaring, that actually, that must have made you feel good to the number one player in the world, that you were getting in his head to that degree. Yeah, so another experience against Medvedev, uh, adding on the list, and uh, no, it got in his head as well, and and I, I haven't really played a player who wasn't affected by my game and Rafa said it perfectly that I'm going to be a very uncomfortable opponent for anybody but I wanted to take it one step further and be like I can beat anyone (laughs) instead of making them uncomfortable so uh, I'm confident that that's going to be the next step for me rather than being an uncomfortable opponent I'm going to be a a very dangerous and dominating opponent. Yes, this and you my do have the goal. ATP title at Newport um, in your most recent tournament, so you check that off the list. Yes, yes. Uh, th- this this was a very nerve-wracking experience to the finals of ATP events. Uh, the yeah, first one is always the hardest. How did you feel? I felt the... relieved. I didn't even feel happy. I felt relieved that uh, I had that first one done. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I, I, I knew the first one is the hardest. My first challenger title is the hardest. The first futures title is the hardest. It's always the first that's the, the most difficult one. So during the Aussie Open, when you're making your first big Grand Slam run at a presser, you said you were unsponsored or you didn't have a clothing sponsor, I think it was at that point, and that you wanted to wait until you were maybe top 10 to make those deals. I think that struck some people's like, again, wow, like this guy really, he's like betting on himself to that degree that he's like not even gonna try to get a sponsor. Do you stand by that decision? Are you like now at like in the low 30s? Are you like thinking about exploring more deals? Are you still gonna wait? No, I still have the same mindset because I go with my words of being top 10 and then then, uh, negotiating. Uh, so uh, no, my, my goal for 2022 is to be top 10 at the end of the year. So that's why I was saying that is, is that I wanted to wait until the end of 2022 to negotiate deals. And I think the best position to negotiate a deal is, is to be the, in the top 10 and have a lot more leverage to discuss what I want uh, from brands. And uh, I, I, I just know that beyond 10 in the 20s or in the 30s that you don't have enough exposure to have that kind of leverage with the brand, so so I'm getting there, yeah. <laughs> so if you look at the ATP's stats, anything to do with serving, you're near the top with Isner and Opelka. There's one stat that you're far and away number one in, which is second serve speed. There's nobody who's even close to you. And I was wondering if that's like an analytics thing or if it's a mental thing. What goes into your approach to want to hit a second serve that's closer to your first serve speed than anybody mm-hmm. else on tour. My mindset is more that I'm hitting two second serves. So I consider my first as a second. 
So I've, I've been able to hack my mind into thinking that I was only hitting second serves. Because you don't hit it as, fast, as hard as you can, the, yes. first, the first serve. Yeah, I don't, I don't hit the first serve as hard as I can. I, I, You're hitting your I spots. have the same rhythm with the, same, uh, with the two serves. I have the same rhythm. So that's why my second serve is getting, is getting stronger and stronger. And I really feel like I, I could have the best second serve in the world uh, in history of tennis. I believe I can really have the best second serve Yeah, because of that mindset, yes. And one stat where you're close to the bottom in ATP is return percentage of breaks, percentage of points won on return. Yeah. Is that something that you need to improve in order to get to the top 100%, 10? yeah. But I really believe it's also because of my lack of patience also that I've not been able to break as much. I think I worked on that a lot. And in Newport, it was much, much better where I was I mean, close to what 36, 37% return points won, which is a lot better than what I'm used to. So I really believe it's very mental, yeah. Is it a little bit more challenging on return given that you absolutely know what you're gonna do on the serve? You're gonna hit your spot and you're gonna rush the net and you're gonna put it away. Whereas on return, you're a little bit at the mercy of the server. You can choose to chip and charge. You can choose to stay back. There's maybe not as much of a clear plan going into a match, a, a game, or a point. Uh, now on return, I'm actually like, I actually have a much bigger, a much clearer plan than before, and that's why I improved so much, and that's why I'm starting to win a lot of matches. Because now on return, I, I feel like I'm like actually the one dictating more the pace after the serve. I, I'm able to read the serve more. And, uh, and I'm really able to start dominating the serve, which I've done really well against Isner or Pelka on grass. I've improved so much, and I may be one of the lowest guys on the, on the top 100 in returns right now, but I really believe that that's going to change really quick. And that's the little missing piece for me to be top 10 or even being close to number one, is to have more, uh, more percentage breaks, yeah. Maxime Cressy, good luck uh, rest of the season making it to, I would say making it to the hot 10, but I know you want to be number one, so yes. I'll say good luck making it to number one. Thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs> now, my second and final interview is with Daria Saville, who made a great run at the City Open. She got all the way to the semifinals. If you're an extreme tennis nerd, you may know her by her maiden name, Daria Gavrilova. She was born in Russia, but has played under the Australian flag since the mid-2010s and is now married to a fellow Australian player, Luke Saville. In our conversation, I asked her about fighting through injuries, speaking openly about mental health, and the implications of her decision to criticize Russia's attack on Ukraine. Take a listen. All right, thank you so much for doing this, first of all. So I wanted to talk to you about a couple of ways that tennis is a very weird job. Yeah. <laughs> you travel the world with people and you're a very kind of social and friendly person and you develop friendships and yet your livelihood is based on beating these people in yeah. tennis matches. So how are you able to compartmentalize that? I know some people just don't want to be make friends. And I think you've talked about how that was really hard for you when you were told when you were younger, don't make friends, and that just didn't work for you? Well, I think um, tennis, it's actually like, it's funny. It's like, um, it's like a circus, like a traveling circus, like, and... Um, we're kind of under a, a big top right here. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, I think it's silly not to make friends, and uh, it, it can get pretty lonely if you're just always by yourself. I know I have a team and I have a coach, 
but I still like to socialize with my friends and you know it's nice to and they can understand what you're going exactly, through the way yeah. that another player can. yeah that's what I was gonna say like you literally go through the same things every week and it's nice to just share a dream with someone else and it's really easy to talk to my tennis friends they understand me the most yeah so in 2019 i think it was you were having problems with your achilles and plantar fasciitis and i read you wrote on uh, behind the racket about how you had this really low moment at wimbledon can you just kind of talk about that moment for you yeah i had achilles problems for a long time like uh, for a few years before the 2019 but that's when it got really bad and you know I still played pretty decent tennis but I just wasn't ready physically like my tennis was better than my mental health <laughs> my physicality and you know with the way I play I need to run a lot and you know I played uh, Elena Svetolina and I actually put myself in a pretty good position in the first set and then I ended up losing that set and then I just was like I don't even deserve it I don't why am I here and yeah I like almost started crying during the match Did anything like that ever happened to you before not really not like that no where I normally actually really enjoy tennis and I want to be out there on the court even if I'm losing I still enjoy hitting a tennis ball so that was kind of tough yeah and it must be really hard when you think that you have to push through an injury you're probably only going to make it worse you're probably not going to play your best you risk hurting yourself but how do you know when it's kind of time to like step away step away from the potential for prize money step away from the potential for points and just take that and for your you know mental health like you talked about well I I don't think I did know when to do that I think you know with that injury it's really hard to explain but I kind of had to manage it I still have to manage it it's not something like it couldn't really get much worse than what it was unless I snapped it but yeah. what was happening is like I just would never know when I would have like really high pain because sometimes I had really good days sometimes I had bad days so I kind of struggled with that and so a few years later I did have another problem with my Achilles and it was like okay I think we've given it all and now we, we can operate so when I went for the scans I was like so excited that there was something <laughs> something bad enough yeah to you know operate on because like it's gave me belief that hey like it's gonna get better so with Naomi Osaka talking so much about mental health it's been a conversation in all kinds of sports was there a kind of moment for you was it around this injury where you felt better talking to other players and saying like I'm really struggling right now I'm having problems mentally I'm, I'm struggling on the court yeah everyone knew like all my close friends it's not like i would go cry to them or you know you can was, just have like a real conversation i could just have a conversation with them yeah and it was also like 
nice because they would understand and then they would be like you know I'm going through this and that and I'm like yeah I can relate and then it's just makes you feel like you're not alone so you are originally from Russia you represent Australia now um, when the war started you put a post on Instagram um, in Russian that said silence in the current situation is equal to complicity Putin stop the war army come home you also wore blue and yellow to support Ukraine what um, led you to make that statement and wear those colors well obviously I wanted to make a stance like I am against the war it was really like hurting me like I still do like watch a lot of videos and you know I well obviously I wanted to stop and it's not like I made the biggest impact but I felt like it's something I just had to do I couldn't just be like okay well it's not my problem I'm gonna stay out of politics because I think everything is kind of political it must be really tricky for you to think about what you want to say I know your family is still in Russia you're friends with a lot of Russian players they're also Ukrainian players on tour there's the issue that you guys all were asked about should the Russian players be banned in Wimbledon how hard was it for you to think about kind of how to navigate those questions and what kind of things to say publicly sometimes I would talk to my family or I would talk to you know my husband Luke and talk about it and be like well do you, should I say something tweet something and you know I don't just like tweet because I I mean I obviously think about it and I have thoughts but you're not gonna tweet every thought you have so yeah I guess I think about it and then I take it seriously and then a few times I got in trouble like I, I can't remember what I tweeted but there was so many like negative comments and then people fighting with each other I was like oh my god what's going on so I'm like I'm deleting that just because I don't want this negativity and like I don't want to read and see it because I think it really does affect me in some way so you know I definitely try and take it seriously and not just tweet every thought that I have so your good friends Daria Kasakina just yeah. did an interview where she came out publicly which was amazing and also criticized the war and also criticized Russian policies towards LGBTQ people which is an extraordinarily brave thing to do given that she does represent Russia she does live there um, what did you think of what she said and did yeah I think it's pretty brave I think the more people are gonna talk about it the louder like the you know athletes or celebrities the louder they get the more change you can make because I think that's how you make a change so I'm really proud of her we always like FaceTime and message each other so when I was watching the interview I was like uh, messaging her and you know at the end she cried where the interviewer said do you know what kind of consequences you can have and she's like yeah I know and she cried and that like killed me I was like also crying and then my mom was watching it and she cried and you know I still haven't seen her but like I really want to give her a big hug 
You also said at one point that you weren't sure if you could go to Russia at this point. What's kind of the status of that or how are you feeling about that? You know, I'm obviously not a politician. It's not like they're looking for me or anything like that, but I still haven't gone. And at this point, I'm not really planning to go. And, you know, I don't want to get in trouble. And my family is a bit nervous about that. And, you know, I would really like to see my grandma, but I can't at this point. But it is it is what it is. So you've been representing Australia since around 2015, mm -hmm. 2016. I read that one of the things that you, one of the reasons why you wanted to become Australian is the coffee. Really? Where <laughs> I did I say that? That's um, definitely not it. <laughs> okay, strike, strike that, strike that. But um, we what, do have really good coffee. <laughs> not a good reason to want to become Australian. Though. It's a great place to live. Obviously, I think you might have a little bit of an Aussie accent at this point. I don't know, but it's also a really challenging place to live if you're a professional tennis player. I know Curious has talked about that. Um, I know you have a dog who I assume you're probably not seeing for most for most of the year. Yeah. Um, at, what is, what is it like to be Australian, live there, but also just not be able to be there because you're traveling? Well, yeah, we don't really come back home as much as, you know, Europeans or um, Americans, but I wouldn't change it. I love my home. I love Melbourne. I I mean, I do really think it's one like one of the best countries to live in. And it does suck when we kind of have to pack for like a few months on the road you know this time around i don't even know how long i'm away for because the calendar is kind of challenging and it's challenging for everyone because the calendar after us open like there is no no real swings like there's a tournament in europe there's a tournament in india in in, in japan so I have no idea where I'm going to go after US Open, whether I'm going to come back or go to Europe and then or go to Japan. But it, I guess it's a challenge for everyone. All right, last question. You're married to Luke Saville, Australian tennis player. He's here. If you guys are both playing, there's four different things that could happen. Both win, both lose. You win, he loses. He wins, you lose. I think both winning is probably the, the, the happiest best time. scenario, yeah. But like, how would you rank the other scenarios? Like if you lose, would you want him to lose too so you can be sad together? No. Or do you always want him to win? I want him to win. I, I think we separate it. Like, it's like win or lose, it doesn't really change what our relationship or I don't actually get really upset if I lose like I'm probably angry for a few hours but I'm like okay well it's not More like I, it's sad. yeah it's not like I haven't lost before where you there's only you tennis players get a lot of practice losing like, exactly much every week every week you lose so it just depends if it's early rounds or you might win a tournament but a few years ago we played Wimbledon that was when Luke was still playing singles we played first round of Wimbledon so he just qualified and we played right next to each other and that was kind of crazy because I kept on looking to check 
his score while I was playing and my coach would be like it's five all in the third like and juice okay concentrate on your court and the reason why she would like tell me what the score is because I wouldn't let go I would need to know she was telling you the score while you were playing so yeah so then I can like just focus back on my court but the challenging part is like if we play at the same time or even if we're not playing at the same time we kind of just spend more time at the courts than I guess someone who doesn't have a partner that also is competing because then we watch each other matches and like support each other so it's probably like more energy draining but if for example like I'm playing a late match and he has to play first match the next day he's not gonna come so we kind of still try and be as professional as possible. Daria Saval. Good luck in DC and thank, thank you so you. much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. <laughs>
hand that's throwing the ball forward. But then you need to figure out a way to get the the other the weak leg in front when you're about to do the cross. So that there's like a a misdirection. It seems like you're about to drive toward the ball that you've thrown. Switch up, boom, and then you're ready to go. One of the great moves. We should have listeners uh, mail us videos of them attempting to do the shame god based only on that description. <laughs> Not ever have seen it before. Let's see how close we get. The thing that stands out, the ball seems to float in front of the opponent as if they could just reach out and grab it, which is one of the things that makes it look so good when Sham God just sneaks right by them. All right, so God Sham God made his move later, his namesake move, famous when he was playing for Providence College. He pulled it off against Arizona in the Elite Eight of the 1997 NCAA tournament. I actually remember that Providence team and that that game. That was a, an incredible uh, NCAA tournament game. And even though he barely played in the NBA, his move does live on in the league. Chris Paul, Kyrie Irving, Russell Westbrook, they've all done it. And when they do, the originator, God Sham God, almost always gets his props. Except maybe he wasn't the originator. This February, The Athletic published a story headlined, The Unknown History of the Sham God Crossover, or as Philly calls it, The Pooh Allen. So Stefan is going to be so upset that he's not here for this because Jerome Pooh <laughs> Allen played at the University of Pennsylvania, go Quakers. And this athletic piece describes Pooh Allen doing the move in a 1993 game that was televised on TNT. In that game, Allen was playing on a team of college stars against the second Dream Team, which was preparing for the Basketball World Championships. And there's a grainy clip, it's embedded right there in the article, where he does the move. And then there's another clip embedded in the article where he does the move again. In the NCAA tournament, three years before Providence played Arizona in the Elite Eight. This is the 1994 NCAA tournament. My favorite part of the story this athletic piece, and we'll link to it in our show notes, is that when Jerome Poo Allen was an assistant coach for the Celtics, he would apparently carry around a videotape of himself doing the, <laughs> let's call it, the Poo Allen and showing it to people to prove that he had done it. Um, the longtime NBA player Marcus Morris, who grew up in Philly, he gives a testimonial. He says, I never heard about the sham god all the way up until maybe like when I was about to go to college. And then I seen it and I was like, wait, Poo Allen created that. Now, for his part, Allen credits an assistant coach at Penn named Fran O'Hanlon with showing him the move, which O'Hanlon called the reach across. O'Hanlon played at Villanova in the <laughs> 60s, then in the ABA and in Europe. Um, and so maybe we'll get to the Europe in a second. That is the connection to the other people who claim to have invented the so-called sham god. When Chris Paul tweeted during the 2022 playoffs about doing the sham god in front of God sham god, who is now a coach for the Mavericks. So when the Suns were playing the Mavericks, Chris Paul did the Sham God in front of God Sham God. NBA players Bogdan Bogdanovich and Nikola Vucevic both said that the real inventor was Dejan Bodoroga. <laughs> Bodoroga is Serbian. He was drafted by the Kings in 1995, but never played in the NBA. He instead became a superstar in Europe. According to a piece in basketnews.com, his version of the dribble was known as El Latigo or The Whip. And there's a video embedded in that Basket News article that does indeed show him sham godding away or whipping or <laughs> O'Hanlining <laughs> or doing the Pooh Allen. Um, and to give credit where it's due, he supposedly learned the move from a Croatian named Danko Svetichinen. 
further study will require us to learn who uh, Don Kospitichnin learned it from. So I am happy to report, I guess, that there doesn't appear to be any beef involved with any of this. In that athletic piece, God Jam God is quoted as saying, for Bodoroga to Jerome Allen, props to them too. So I guess the lesson <laughs> here is, Vincent, if you want a move named after you, then have a cool name and maybe also be from New York. Absolutely. I mean, I didn't know that I was going to be party to sham god trutherism. I, I feel <laughs> I feel like a traitor. I feel somehow sullied. I I don't know what to say. I just want to like everybody out there. I all I did here was sit and and sometimes <laughs> laugh. I'm sorry to my city. God, you're still the god. But you know, there's only so many things you can do with your body. I feel like this <laughs> this move was out there. It's, it looks beautiful, but it is simple. Of course, someone's done it before, but God is still the God. That is our show for today. Our producer is Kevin Bendis. Listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out. Go to slate.com slash hangup and you can email us at hangup at slate.com. And don't forget to subscribe and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. For Vincent Cunningham and Henry Grobar, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zalmo Beatty and thanks for listening. Now it is time for our bonus segment for Slate Plus members. And we're going to talk about uh, baseball again. And Henry, you wrote a piece um, for Slate after the Juan Soto trade. He went from the Washington Nationals to the San Diego Padres. The Padres now have three of the, maybe I'll let, I'll let you tell us, three of the X most exciting players in the entire sport in Soto, Manny Machado, and Fernando Tatis Jr. And there's this concentration of both great players and fun players to watch in the Pacific time zone now. Right, Henry? That's right, Josh. I I crunched the numbers on this because I I knew I had to come (laughs) prepared because people were going to be mad. (laughs) Turns out they were mad anyway, but... I brought the numbers, and here are the These numbers. These are the Slate Plus members. They're always very friendly to us and generous <laughs> generous of spirit. I don't know. These Southern California baseball fans, man. They told me, I said, I said all the best hitters in the game are playing in the middle of the night, and they said, uh, you're sleeping in the middle of the day. <laughs> <laughs> but here's, here's what I learned. So um, we've got, of the, so of the top 10 hitters in baseball over the last three seasons, measured in wins over replacement. Um, five of them are now playing in Southern California. That's Trey Turner, Freddie Freeman, and Mookie Betts with the Dodgers, Machado and Soto for the Padres. But that doesn't quite state the extent of it because 11th on that list is Fernando Tatis Jr., who misses the top 10 only because he did not play a full season until last year. And two other guys were missing from that list are Mike Trout and Shohei Otani, who need no introduction, but for uh, various reasons, each of them also didn't uh, make it onto that top 10 list, although I think they're indisputably among uh, the top 10 best and most exciting players in baseball. So, um, yeah, I brought some I brought some receipts here to show that uh, there are very uh, a very large number of very good baseball players playing in Southern California, and furthermore, that this is a problem because uh, m- many of their games, about half, uh, if not more, start at 10 p.m. Eastern. And the other number that you brought to the discussion, Henry, is that one in six Americans 
live in the Pacific time. And so just based on math, at most two of the top 10 players should be in the Pacific time zone. If one of six Americans live there, they should get one, of six, one in six of the best players. That, that's that's right. I, I, and I, I think it might be a is little... Is that right? I don't know. <laughs> no, it's right that one in six Americans live in the Pacific time zone. That part is, that part is true. Um, yes. Well, as, as for what to do about it, it's complicated, right? I mean, I don't think we should necessarily redistribute baseball talent purely <laughs> according to population density. Although if we were doing that, obviously New York City would be in great shape, but it already is. So, you know, we're, we're pulling our weight here. Um, but I do think it's a problem, right? Because baseball has uh, a name recognition problem with its biggest stars. Um, nobody knows who what Mike Trout looks like, uh, to say nothing of all these other guys. And um, I think part of the problem is that they all play baseball in the middle of the night. And um, I've heard many, many counter arguments since this piece was published. Uh, Southern California baseball fans do not agree with me, but I think that they should start games on the West Coast a little bit earlier. I would be all for that. Also, <laughs> one of the one of the solutions. Of course, you would, Vincent. Of course, of course you would. yeah. One of the solutions is if you're the Boston Red Sox, don't don't trade Mookie. You know, some of this is the, the East point. Coast. Some of this is the East Coast's fault. So I, I'm not same I'm, for the Nationals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm not so quick to blame our our siblings in Southern California. No, no. If anything, if anything, they are blessed. To have baseball teams in their in their areas who are uh, investing in top talent, competing, actually trying to win. I mean, it's it's an absolute blessing for for them. Um, but let's think about the sport, and in particular, right. the sports aging fans on the East Coast who do not want to stay up until twelve thirty uh, a.m. to uh, to you know catch a, a Dodgers uh, Angels interleague matchup. Um, those fans should be treated to perhaps some Saturday afternoon games that are played at 4 p.m. Eastern. Would that be so much to ask? Yeah, I mean, maybe that's the compromise, is more day games on the weekends. And I feel like the thing that your piece is is sort of getting at is this question of baseball being a local sport versus a national sport. And that issue or question is, I feel, Think going to be more pronounced than ever with this enormous concentration of talent on the San Diego Padres. And all credit to the Padres for wanting to spend, for wanting to, for trying to put together a winner in a sport where so often, um, you know, too much credit, I feel like, has been given for teams like, oh, they're doing it on the cheap. How smart, how sabermetrically sophisticated <laughs> of them. It's like, no, like give credit to the team that gets the best play, that gets a lot of great players and tries to put a good product on the field, entertaining product and also a winning product. So like go Padres. But this is not a team, Henry, that has any sort of historical footprint where there's any kind of um, national reputation, national fan base for this team. And this is a sport that operates on hardcore local fandom, you know, People going to the games, watching on on local TV. There's certainly Padres fans, but also these like national name brands: Red Sox, Yankees, Giants, Dodgers. And so, like, how do the pod how do the Padres fit into that? And does the sport have room for a team like the Padres that has all these great players but doesn't evoke anything when you say the Padres? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I think there's a bit of a, a there's a chicken and egg 
thing going on here. People are local baseball fans in part because, well, for, for one thing, it demands a lot of your time to be a fan of a baseball team. I mean, we're talking three hours a game, 162 games a year, more if you're lucky. That's it's a lot of hours already. Um, but part of it also is that for a long time it's been basically impossible to watch a team that's not your own because there's only a few nationally televised games a week and you never know which team is going to show up in them. Um, that is not the case anymore, right? Like MLB has rolled out these premium audio video products where you can follow any team you want. And I think there's an opportunity should they decide to take it to, to help people maybe, um, follow along with some, some of the teams that have gotten the best players and, and making sure that, that, you know, baseball fans who have a, a general sense of the sport, um, maybe start to follow some, some of these guys and some of these teams. I think that, you know, if Judge makes a run at 60, 61 home runs this year, knock on wood, I think you might see a national audience tuning into Yankees games to watch that, for example. So I don't think it's impossible that this might happen. Um, but baseball certainly hasn't tried. Yeah, I mean, Vincent, I don't think there will ever be the same kind of following around of players as a fan as we get in the NBA. Like, I, I just don't yeah. think that's really baked into to baseball. And I don't, I mean, I, I think there's some some wiggle room, Henry, as, as you're talking about. And obviously, if I was running the sport, I would be thinking really hard <laughs> about how to um, make it as po- as popular um, as possible and having these star players become national figures. But yeah, Vincent, I just don't feel like they're going to, they're just not going to be a lot of nationals fans who are going to become Padres fans now. That's just like not how it works. I I do think that it's not how it works because partially because of the profile of the game now and also because of the sort of, as you mentioned, the localness. But I do think to Henry's point that, um, it's better for the game if they don't. It's a weird thing of like that's poss- probably true, but it's better for the game if they keep trying to make it not true. Like it's better for the for the game if they keep pushing as if that is one day attainable. Um, therefore, the the new people coming into it, there can still be this sense of rejuvenation. I mean, I just want to send a, a a a prayer, a thought to Mike Trout, who's always the guy. That's mentioned as, and nobody knows what Mike Trout looks like. He must be, he, he must hate hearing that now. Like he's the one that we use for that, but it's true. And I, I mean, I don't think they should stop trying to not make that true and like trade Shohei to the Yankees for the good of all of us, right? Like we need that <laughs> so that, that so that we can all see him. There are things that can be done, practical things like uh, sending away the best player on one team just to, just for the enjoyment of me. Like we can do some of this stuff. The continent might actually tip over, Henry, just because of all the star power on the West Coast. It's for for public safety. Too many big bats over there. It's a fire hazard. <laughs> Thank you, everyone who sent Henry a comment on that piece. They were all incredibly polite and well-intentioned. Um, and thank you to everybody uh, who is a Slate Plus member. We will be back with more next week.